Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org daily. It can be maddening talking about gender inequality. We've seen how the hashtag MeToo movement pushed the conversation along. But how do you get buy-in from those who don't already believe there is a problem? And what about power and the solutions for moving forward? Author and feminist columnist Lorraine McKeon takes that on in her new book. It's called No More Nice Girls, Gender, Power, and Why It's Time to Stop Playing by the Rules. And she joins us now from the provincial capital for more. Hi, Lorraine. Hi. It's so nice to meet you virtually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have to add that to everything these days, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you write, a uh, great book, by the way. Uh, you. you write that this book isn't about self-empowerment, but that, quote, broadly, it's about how we've been hoodwinked. Who's the we, and how have we been hoodwinked? You know, I think the we is all of us. It's all genders. I think it's not just women who have been hoodwinked into believing that the system works for all of us. And there are many people that lose um, in a system in which power is so unbalanced. And I think, you know, we've been hoodwinked into believing that if we just try hard enough, that's the self-empowerment angle of it. You know, if we just try hard enough, if we work more, if we sacrifice more, if we're, if we buy the right clothes, have the right look, know the right people, then we will succeed and we will, you know, achieve our dreams and we will have all the power that we want. And it just doesn't work like that. And there's so many examples that show us um, that it doesn't. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that it's not just affecting uh, women, it's also affecting men. How is this affecting men? You know, I think that we have to bring intersectionality into it. So, you know, there are certainly men of color who are affected by the imbalance. Trans men are affected by the imbalance. But not just that, when you look at you know, who's losing and why we would want equality for everyone. I mean, it's so easy to say like, yes, straight white men have everything, but there are many ways in which putting people into boxes and expecting things to happen, you know, cause everyone to lose. And I don't think that um, people want to continue on. We look at the news events, um, you know, the states and in Canada now, and it it all comes together, you know, all of our systems of inequality fit together. And there's a way in seeing, you know, if I'm losing or if someone else is losing, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're winning. If the system is corrupt and horrible and we're building countries and systems like the ones that we're seeing, you know, I don't want to live in those countries. And I think even the people that are at the top now, um, have a lot to account for and a lot to lose. 
Uh, it's interesting you mentioned uh, what's happening in the world right now um, with the uh, pandemic. We've, you know, there's a new term that has been coined by Armin Yalnesian, who's been on the show uh, a yeah. couple of times, and she's uh, calling, you know, the recession a she session. Um, has it surprised you how you've seen how um, COVID-19 has impacted women and women and work? It's not surprising, but I think it's really underscoring just how broken our systems are and how unequal they are. You know, we're looking at when you look at who has lost their jobs, you know, as you said, the she session, it's women primarily that have been affected. And it's one of the first recessions where we've seen women be the most affected. Um, and not only that, you know, on the flip side of that, we've really seen the opportunity of women to come forward and lead and show us a different way of leadership. So when we look at, you know, who has really been affected by this pandemic, it is women. And I don't think we're really talking about that as much as we could, not just the she session, but our new models of leadership, but also the way that women have really led us through the pandemic. They're on the front lines. They are, you know, we see new styles of leadership emerging. Um, we see toxic styles of leadership, you know, really failing. And I think that um, as we go forward, we'll see how the pandemic has underscored, you know, some of the issues and also opened up an appetite for conversation about how things can change and how they should change. Well, I was going to bring this up later, but since you're talking about leadership and some of the leadership styles that we've seen during uh, this global pandemic, and one person that um, a lot of people have been giving a lot of praise towards and her response to uh, the pandemic has been Jacinda Ardern, uh, New Zealand's prime minister. Mm -hmm. And recently something happened. Um, I want to show you the clip. And, um, and then after, I want to get your response to how she responded to that. We're just having a bit of an earthquake here, Ryan. Quite a, quite a decent shake here. But um, if you see things moving behind me, the beehive moves a little more than most. Uh, yep, no, it's it's just stopped. No, we're fine, Ryan. I'm not under any hanging lights. I look like I'm in a structurally sound, uh, sound place. So she was doing an interview, uh, an earthquake happened. I mean, I probably would not have been as graceful. I probably would have screamed and hid somewhere. Um, but um, she was grace under fire. How has her, um, why is she a good example of a woman leader succeeding on her own terms? You know, we've always been told that some of the key characters Characteristics that she has are actually bad. Like when it comes to leadership, we've been told that, you know, compassion is weakness, uh, collaboration is bad, that's not how you lead something, uh, don't be human, don't uh, be warm, don't be reassuring, <laughs> you know, all of these things that we typically key as female characteristics. Uh, we've been told not to do, and she just breaks all of those rules. You know, she's utterly herself and in doing so has found a new way to lead and not only has she found a new way to lead she's really connected to people and it's not just in terms of popularity you know what her leadership style is working we can see that with how new zealand has gone through the pandemic but also other crises uh that have struck the country so i think that 
she's showing us a different model of leadership. And it's not just her, we've seen it through you know, numerous women through the pandemic. Uh, we've seen here in Canada, in BC, Dr. Bonnie Henry has been widely praised as well for some of those same characteristics of, you know, informative, of course, but also human and being warm. You know, she's talked about her quarantine haircut. <laughs> she's talked about her shoes. She's talked about romantic partnerships. It's, you know, acknowledging that people are human, um, but also, you know, treating everyone in a way that is kind and good, you know, and on the flip side, we've seen where leaders have not gone down those paths during this pandemic and how disaster has followed. Well, in the book, um, you do talk about power. Um, I think a lot of us have more power than we realize. Um, do you think that we need to reconsider the traits of what makes a good leader um, in order to address the power gap? Absolutely. I think that we so typically not just view men as leaders, but of course we do, um, but a certain type of masculinity as leadership and the qualities that it exudes as good qualities. And we've seen, you know, we most often look to the states and hold up Donald Trump because he's such a easy <laughs> example of toxic masculinity gone wrong. But we know that it's not just the states. We know that this sort of toxic masculine um, leadership approach has spread throughout the country. And, you know, we've seen it in other, or sorry, throughout the world. And we've seen it in other countries as well. And we've seen people's rights slip back. We've seen um, tension soaked, population stoked, and we know that it's not working, or at least it's not working for the majority of people in those countries. So when we've seen this sort of toxic masculinity um, spread and catch fire in terms of a leadership style, and we've seen that it's not working, we've seen democracy slide back, we've seen democracy under attack. And I think we can look at it and say, you know, we once used to hold this type of leadership up. It's the type of leadership that, um, you know, we see reflected in popular culture when we talk about, you know, male leaders are strong, they're angry, they're decisive, they don't listen to anybody but themselves. And I think, you know, we know that's not working. So what can work? And I think that we're starting to see success come from things that we never thought would work in terms of leadership. You know, we've always been told, don't be collaborative, don't be kind, don't be warm, uh, don't have a human side. All of those things make bad leaders. It makes you indecisive. And I think, you know, we're seeing the benefits of things that we've typically dismissed. And it makes sense that we've dismissed them because we associate them with women and we don't associate women with power and we don't want to. Um, I, wa I would like to read in a short excerpt from your book, No More Nice Girls. Perhaps then it's finally time to start rethinking feminism's one-time goals to ditch our old checklist for equality. Yes, let's not abandon our strategizing toward getting more women to the top, but let's also examine a deeper, less considered problem. That is what the view from the top looks like for women once they're there. What if we could redefine not just women's path to power, but the very concept of power itself? What if we stop focusing on playing the game better, ditch the rule book and refuse to play their game at all? What would power even look like to us if we weren't always visualizing it within the context of men? 
with that in mind, um, how can women start to look at their power differently to reshape or redefine leadership? Yeah, you know, I think we've always been told as women that equality and power will come once we get to the top of whatever it is. You know, once we see more women leaders, once we see more women CEOs, once we see more women leading XXX. And we haven't really looked at what it looks like for them once they're there. And that is, you know, a lot of discrimination. Uh, the pay gap widens when women are at the top. Um, we see sexual harassment, we see them become bigger targets for sexual harassment because, you know, now they have power and they need to be, you know, quote unquote, taken down a peg. And I think, but we just keep trying to replicate it. We just, you know, keep trying to say, once we have what men have, then we have power and everything's good. And we don't look at, you know, whether we want that or if that's what we would build for ourselves. We're not looking at, you know, community leadership. What comes, um, you know, if we want, um, you know, collaborative groups together. Maybe we want our leadership to look totally different. Maybe we want a trauma-informed business. Maybe we want a collective. Um, maybe we don't actually want to be a CEO. You know, and I think we just have not typically stepped outside of being on almost autopilot <laughs> to, um, you know, to just keep replicating the same thing over and over again. And if it doesn't work, then it's like, well, it's our fault. And we're not looking at the system. So I think that there are so many people reimagining different ways of being and leadership and success and what that even looks like and what we want. Um, and we need to empower ourselves to dream outside of the box and outside of the playbook. Um, I know the title of your book has probably gotten a lot of attention, No More Nice Girls. I think I'm pretty nice. Um, and in the past, you've actually said that um, in, a, in a previous interview, you said that niceness is a trap. Um, what did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I have definitely been called nice as well. And I think that, you know, when people see the title, and yes, I've been asked a lot, like, do you mean women should just be horrible and mean? Like, is that what you want us to do? And I, it's not that. I think there's a difference between niceness and kindness. And, you know, kindness is very different. You know, kindness is treating everyone with equality and treating everyone like they're human and like they matter. But niceness is, you know, what we tell women when we want them to be more palatable. We say, you know, you're, you're not nice enough. Um, it's what we say to women when we think they're being too aggressive. You know, you need to be nicer. But then if you're too nice, it's like, well, you're not leadership material because you don't have what it takes to, you know, make the decisions or to lead a room. So I think there's there's no way you can win once you fall into the niceness trap. You're either too much or too little. And it's just something that we throw out to women um, to kind of encourage them to fit back into the box and to fit back into the mold that we want for them. Is this uh, what you mean when you talk about the be sure to play nice syndrome? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, you know, and we've heard it before that, you know, women's anger and their aggression um, is often used as a way to dismiss them. And it's not just anger and aggression, you know, you could be speaking 
up for yourself. You could be even just making a simple decision. Um, you could be talking, maybe you are a leader and you're talking to someone who reports into you um, and you're you know, deemed to be too harsh. And I think you know, if you don't try and walk that impossible tightrope of nice and decisive and or leadership, you know, that you're, it's just something that, you, you know, you inevitably will fall off the tightrope. And it just depends on what side you fall into. If you fall into like you're being too nice or if you fall into being you're too angry, but there's no way that you can win. Uh, and somebody I think who knows that firsthand um, is the former uh, first lady, Hillary Clinton. And you write that quote, uh, Hillary Clinton is perhaps the most famous of the contemporary cautionary tales for women. Um, what do you mean by that? You know, when I was researching the book and talking to people about um you know, when they saw power go wrong <laughs> or, you know, what moment at which did you realize that you could never win, that, you know, the game was kind of corrupt. So many people would refer back to Clinton in Canada and in the States and, you know, other parts of the world. And the reason for that, I think, is that we saw firsthand, and that's not to say that, you know, Clinton is a perfect figure or that women leaders are above reproach. Of course they're not. But we saw that Clinton just couldn't win. She was either characterized as being too masculine or, you know, when she, you know, cried or showed human emotion, then she was either fake or too feminine, you know, or she wasn't ready. She wasn't tough enough. There was no way that she could win in the public eye. And it was so easy for her detractors to exploit um, all the problems that we have with women leaders and with women in power. So I think that, you know, we saw her fail in such a dramatic way where people were so sure that she was going to win. Um, you know, if you remember seeing the polls like yeah, and the polls and the predictions and everything, we were so sure she was going to win. And then we saw just how not ready we were for a women leader. And I think that that has stuck with people, even as we see more examples and um, more failures and more women being totally batted around in the press and being told that they're not X enough. Um, and I think there was also the mood of like, um, if someone as accomplished as she is, um, wasn't able to get to that point, then what does that mean for everybody else? Um, and there was a lot of disappointment with her losing the presidency, um, but a large number of women didn't vote for her. Uh, they mm -hmm. voted for uh, the, uh, the current president, uh, President Trump. Um, and some would say that they actually voted against their own self-interest. So how do you then get men on side when it's obvious that not all women support other women, um, that some women are motivated by other things? Yeah, I mean, I think to that point, it's not just a matter of getting men on side. It's a matter of getting everyone inside. We're so invested in the status quo. And it's terrifying to so many people to break away from that. And I think, you know, it. Hillary doesn't, and other women leaders don't just represent, um, you know, the first women, uh, the first woman X, they represent, you know, a shift in the fundamental idea of who we think is powerful and what systems 
um, we put our trust in and our faith in. And I think asking people to change that, you know, we've seen in so many different examples of so many different movements, not just feminism, um, of how terrified people are of letting go of our systems of equality, inequality. Well, let's and, talk about Kim. Yeah. Sorry, no, I, I didn't mean to you. Um, let's talk about Kim Campbell, um, Canada's only woman uh, prime minister. In the lead up to the election in 1993, you write in the book that she had been the most popular Canadian prime minister in 30 years, um, but she lost badly. Um, if she was so popular, why did she lose? I mean, we can ask the same question of Hillary Clinton too, right? Who was like not <laughs> as much as she had her detractors, she, you know, was popular at the same time too. There were a lot of people that were really invested in her winning and wanted to see it happen. So I think, you know, it comes down to, and a lot of researchers have shown this, that, you know, it comes down to this idea that, you know, what we say we want and, you know, who we say we're going to vote for is often at odds with this, with our idea when it comes down to it of who should be in power and who we envision as a leader. So no matter how popular and how much we like someone and how, you know, they are reflected in the polls, when it comes down to actually voting for them and picturing them in power again, I mean, she wasn't in power for very long from Campbell, you know, picturing them in power, we can't picture it. We can't see it. We're so, afraid of that change that we just don't go forward and i think you know it's not everyone but it's a lot of people still you interviewed a variety of people uh, for the book to discover ways um, in which women are making changes at grassroots levels um, why is the work that's being done at the grassroots level so important to advance the movement forward you know i think so much creativity always exists in the grassroots and like a multitude of actions and different ways of being like when we look at imagining new models of power and success and collaboration and what it looks like to work together and how we ensure that certain voices aren't drowned out and how we raise up other voices that we don't hear from enough it's often the grassroots who at the grassroots level where we're seeing that innovation and we're seeing that ability to move swiftly and you know to have that conversation and to make that change and i think that we need to look to the grassroots for models of how we can do power differently and how what where we do need to go next and i think that you know we need to see change in systems of course but they move slowly you know that's how we structured our whole society is in those systems they don't want to budge. <laughs> so I think, you know, it's so important to look at the grassroots because that is where we are seeing the push for change come. And I think that inevitably it's going to, it will come from the bottom. It will come from the bottom up and it has to, because, you know, when we look at social change throughout history, it's always the grassroots that push the mainstream into change because they, inevitably become loud enough that we can't ignore them. Um, we only have a few minutes left, um, but there's something 
when I was reading the book that I just kept thinking about and it wouldn't leave my brain. Um, you write in the book about burning it all down. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you think that um, maybe it's time, you know, because we're saying you can lean in, but not lean in too much. We're telling young girls, you can be anything you want to be, but can they? Um, do you think it's, it's time for us to reconsider feminism? I think that we can never look at feminism as a fixed movement. And the reason for that is that, you know, we are in this moment now when we're looking at intersectionality and why that is so essential to feminism and who even gets to speak within the movement and what those messages are. There's a reason why we've seen waves of feminism. And I think that you know, obviously we have to look back at the people who brought us here and we have to, um, you know, explore feminism's own history and who we have honored in the past and who, you know, we have not looked at when we think of, you know, our feminist foremothers. But I think that, you know, absolutely it has to keep changing. We have to have those conversations about, the, not just the messages that feminism puts out, but who it allows and amplifies when it comes to putting out those messages and what they might be. And I think that, you know, we're looking at a plurality of feminisms and I think that's key. And we can't just assume that it's, you know, that feminism is a done deal and it can't also interrogate itself, it has to. And in writing this book, you wanted to do what? It's it's interesting because the book came out, you know, right as the pandemic was hitting. And, you know, what I had hoped was to start a conversation about, um, you know, systems of inequality and to look at it, you know, from the structural level. But also there's so many people I interview in the book that are doing amazing, inspiring, brilliant things to challenge the system and to challenge leadership and to challenge, you know, the way things are. And I think that as we see the world undergo this huge change, it's only spotlighted all the ways in which certain systems don't work and the ways in which the economy doesn't work. You know, when we do talk about the she session, we talk about leadership, we talk about uh, who has power and voice. And I think that I just want that conversation to continue because we know that the way things are going now can't continue and we've seen just how broken uh things are and i think we have like an incredible opportunity right now to keep reimagining and to keep talking about change and what it might look like and what we want it to look like lauren thank you so much uh, that's all the time we have mm -hmm. and as a woman of a certain age because i am older than you um mm -hmm. i feel great hope that there are uh, women like you who are uh, pushing the conversations forward. Thank you so much. Thank you. And the Agenda in the Summer with Nam Kiwanuka is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.